It sounds like regional swing. Libby's difficult second carton drink. Oh, definitely these meatballs. I mean, they had Christmas in no forest carton. Yeah, I don't want to get all kind of sepia tinted here. No, it's just a little bit. They're only eating macaroni. <laughs> you don't want to leave less powerful bantle for frippery, Astral Cup. <laughs> and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about six things that they remember that no one else ever seems to. I'm not entirely sure how or why, but right in front of me right now is a copy of Suck It and See, the lone 1990 album by indie dance band Candyland, featuring the hits Fountain O' Youth and Rainbow. I'd wager not many people remember either of those hits, but at the same time, You wouldn't really expect them to, because Candyland only had the one album and it never really did that well. Terence Trent Darby's second album, Neither Fish Nor Flesh, was of course the follow-up to one of the most successful albums of the entire 80s. It's a fair bet that not many people have made their way right the way through the album, but when writer Justin Lewis appeared on the show, he not only wanted to say that he had, but he had plenty to say in its defence. Well, not only have I sat through the whole thing, I bought this record when it came out, and in fact, I spent probably £11.99 of my student grant on the CD version of this record. I think the bit everybody forgets about this record now is that when it came out, it actually got some quite good reviews. It actually got, you know, sevens, eights out of ten in The Enemy and The Melody Maker and Q Magazine gave it a good review, I seem to remember. And I make this clear because I can tell you if they'd all said it stank the room out, I wouldn't have gone out to buy it. So, And I also, there was something about it. I really, really liked the first Terence Trent Derby record, introducing the hardline. It was fantastic. Just about everything on it could have been a single. And so, you know, I can imagine the scene at CBS Records where the head of A&R said, you know, well, Terence, you know, you've, you've won loads of awards. You've won a Grammy. You've sold 12 million copies of this record or whatever. Congratulations on your success. Here is a big lorry full of money. Please go off and make another multi-million selling masterpiece and then we can celebrate the next stupendous chapter of your glittering career. And, you know, 18 months goes by and in the autumn of 1989, he comes back with this record, Neither Fish Nor Flesh. And, of course, it flops completely. I mean, it get, I mean, it does go into the charts, number 12, I think, which if that had been the first record he ever put out, that wouldn't have been too bad a start. But... That is not a good omen, even in the weeks leading up to Christmas as a follow up to a huge selling record. And, you know, bearing in mind, this is about the same time that you've got, you know, Kate Bush is coming back with a new album and uh, who else? Chris Rea and Phil Collins. You know, there's lots of lot big name artists coming back. The thing is, in the same way that with that Dexys Midnight Runners album that came out, don't stand me down they did not release a single before the album came out they probably thought oh it'll be fine this, the album will just sell and then of course the album came out and they probably thought we'd better have put a single out just in case <laughs> and the first and the first thing they put out was a very atypical song i would say called this side of love which is a much rockier thing and also the other thing to bear in mind with this i was quite a big prince fan at this point 
I mean, I still am, but I really, really was at this point. And I particularly enjoyed those Prince albums that went all over the shop, Parade, Inside the Times and Around the World in a Day. Every track was sort of very different, sprawling in a good way. That was a sort of a slightly rockier single. And this is also, bear in mind, this is before, you know, it's up to people whether there's a good thing or a bad thing. This is before Lenny Kravitz was a thing. You know, it was this thing where, you know, you were supposed to, if you were a soul artist, you made soul records. If you were a rock artist, you made rock records. It was that kind of thing. And Prince had kind of muddied that water slightly, but it was very tricky. And this record is kind of, it's got, you know, there's some tracks on it that are quite funky and there are some tracks on it that are much more in keeping with the first album that are sort of just soul workouts and all that kind of thing. And then there's a few things on it that are really bizarre. That single, To Know Someone Deeply, I think if they put that out ahead of the album, it would have probably have done OK. I don't think it would have sold loads, but I think it would have done better than it actually did. Because by the time it came out, I read somewhere that apparently there was a pressing plant full of unsold copies of this record. I wouldn't be surprised, but it's quite odd that 1989 was something of a year for that. Because I remember Q did a feature, probably only in the mid-90s, called Can I Have My Money Back? Yes, uh, yes. About all kinds of albums like this. On that list, I remember there was Tim Machine, which got really good reviews, including from Q when it came out. Yes. There was the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, which got terrible reviews. And there was Terry Blair and Anushka, which was one of Terry Hall's God, projects yeah. where they had Jerry yeah. Sadovitz in the video for the single from the album. That's right. That's the only thing That's anyone right. remembers about it. But that yeah. just got ignored when it was like, well, there's nothing wrong with any of those albums. And probably not with this, I'm going to wager. It is just an odd album, I would surmise. I don't think a record like this would get made now. And I know people often say this about the past, as if you say, oh, it's too dangerous you can get away with it now but i think one of the problems that happened to a few albums around about then was people took a long time to make an album in those days you could you could go away tears for fears had just come back with the first record for nearly five years i think seeds of love which is quite an odd album in its way i mean there's a few hits on it but it, it's sort of an oddity really yeah. blue nile had come back first album for five years kate bush first new album for four years i think people had taken a while and what i really liked about neither fish nor flesh I bought Three Feet High and Rising by Della Soul around the same time. And what I liked about it was you just didn't know where it was going to go next. So each track, it sort of felt like, oh, my God, where's this going now? Even though some of it was pretentious beyond belief, I'll be honest. I'm very fond of this record, by the way, and I still own it. I've still got the CD of it. Has it still got the price label on it? No, it hasn't, unfortunately. I'd love to be able to say that it did. I kind of miss, if that record was being made now, they'd probably say, "Mm, "Okay, Terence, could you do a duet with Ed Sheeran on track seven, please? At the time, you were kind of allowed to make those mistakes. People are great in hindsight, aren't they? They go, huh, if only he'd done this, or if only done... What happened in the late 80s in pop music was... The landscape changed a hell of a lot in just a couple of years. Because if you think about it, in 1987, which is when the first Terence album came out, House was still sort of fringy. Stock Aitken and Walkman hadn't become quite the juggernaut they're no, about to. No. Hip-hop wasn't really mainstream. And two years later, really, because that's all it was, British soul music as it as it were i mean i know tony Darby is not british but you know it was an album that was made in britain yeah. that first album to all intents and purposes all the other players are british 
the producer Martin Ware is British. You know, it was all this kind of thing. And the second album's exactly the same. I mean, the kick horns are on this second album five years before they're on Blur albums. You know, he got all the big sort of session players of the time. British soul music was now soul to soul. Yes. And then a cherry, maybe. And, you know, it was it it was a quite different thing. And, And I think even if Terence Trent Darby had made that first album in 1989. Would it have sold? I don't know. No one knows. That's the thing about pop music. Nobody knows what's going to sell, really. It's easy after the event to say that you think it might have done. I think we should say, by the way, of course, that he still makes records, but he is not called Terence Trent Darby anymore. But what gets rid of that history was he had that comeback album in, I think it was 93. Yeah. I think he had another stupid title, but that did quite well, didn't it? Symphony or Damn. That was it. And, yes. Yeah. And he had, had Delicate and She kissed me both of which i thought were quite good singles yeah well delicate was the one with desiree wasn't it delicate that's, that's quite a good song right that. please that's quite a nice song that i mean there's another song we haven't mentioned it's on this album which i really thought if they put this one out as a hit single it's called i'll be all right and it's got a bit of a ponderous intro but if they cut it down for radio i think it would have been a hit and this album as i said came out just a few weeks after i arrived at university when i graduated literally the week i graduated from college I happened to hear Chris Morris sitting in on the Radio 5 breakfast show because Danny Baker was on holiday and he played I'll Be All Right. And as it faded out, he said these words. He said, that's from the much slagged Neither Fish Nor Flesh, Terence Trent Darby album. Actually, had some quite good stuff on it. He had a go, didn't he? And I can remember thinking two things in that moment. And one was the relief that somebody else had heard it and thought some of it was quite good. And the other thought was, He had a go. I mean, you can't say fairer than that. He had a go. And it wasn't just Terence who was having a go in the 80s. When broadcaster Mark Thompson returned to the show for a second appearance, he wanted to talk about a soft drink that didn't quite catch on in the way that its manufacturers probably hoped. It was a drink. It it came in a carton. It was made by the same people who made Umbongo. And I think it came out like around 1980. 1986 I think it was like maybe a couple of years after Umbongo and it I guess it probably fits the description of Libby's difficult second carton drink because <laughs> I I really liked it I mean Umbongo is the one everyone remembers that wouldn't be suitable for this podcast because everyone will tell you they're way down deep in the middle of the Congo and everyone remembers that very few people seem to remember this one though I have mentioned it a few times and I just kind of get blank looks I can't even really remember exactly what sort of flavour it was. It was kind of a fruit drink. It wasn't fizzy. It was flat because it was in a carton. The advert itself seemed to be very memorable. The drink was called Moonshine. And obviously that's a play on the idea that it's kind of you know, it's being illicit and it's being smuggled over the border and that sort of thing. So I think there were like weasels brewing it in some basement that looked a bit like it had a still in it. And then they were kind of loaded into the truck and then they were again over the county line. I just remember it was it was quite a fun advert and it was on a lot at the time. And I, I guess I'm, I just assume that this drink would be around forever because... You know, I was too young to realise that things like that come and go. And no, I had it a few times. I really liked it. And suddenly it wasn't there anymore. It was very disappointing. It's like, what happened to Moonshine? And then not only was it not there anymore, but it was like a few years later, what happened to Moonshine? And people were like, what? What are you even talking about? Well, I don't remember specifically what was in the flavour, but I do know that whereas Umbongo was kind of tropical fruits, 
This is supposedly, it's wrong to say forest fruits, but kind of homegrown ones. You I know, think it, that's right, yeah. Yeah, the idea was that it was, you know, it was down to earth, normal, and brewed, as you say, by hillbilly weasels. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's because, you know, th- there isn't another thing called Umbongo in the world. Yeah. They may drink it in the Congo, apparently, but, you know, <laughs> that that's the only thing you associate with Umbongo. But even at the time, I remember being really confused because in the, was it looking that had the A-team strip. Wherever it was, they broke up a moonshine still. I remember BA saying, any fool who drinks this will go blind. And I didn't <laughs> know what moonshine actually was. I was thinking, what? what's the problem? What? Why are they so upset about Libby's moonshine? <laughs> yeah, I think that that might be something to do with it, actually, because obviously the phenomenon of trying to Google something and not being able to find it because it's absolutely swamped with things that have similar names or use the exact same word. That's a phenomenon that we're all very familiar with now. But even in the non-digital age, I guess there was a risk that if you name your thing something that's just a bit too generic or something that's much more famously known as something else, like, you know, moonshine, obviously illicit hooch, that, yeah, it's just going to kind of fit in a category that is going to be difficult for people to kind of separate it out and like you say when you come across it in a different context where people are actually talking about the other thing yeah i probably didn't know how would i how old would i have been in about 86 i would have been about 12 so i probably wouldn't have really understood what moonshine the actual real moonshine was at that point so yeah libby's being kind of clever clever with their marketing maybe they shot themselves in the foot sheriff nathaniel toad was chasing stanley <laughs> stoughton's brother irvine who raced over the county line with their car <laughs> of moonshine it appears to have very closely ripped off Rupert and the Frog Chorus which hadn't occurred to me before that but there's a lot of maybe not harmonising frogs but it's very definitely in that aesthetic you know with the big boob eyes now now you're saying it I can sort of see that just as a side note do you ever notice about the Frog Chorus you know the bit at the start where Paul goes into that room and looks in that chest takes out the Rupert annual and blows dust off it in the background there's a Rupert toy lying at a weird crazy angle like he's murdered it it's like the last shot of cannibal holocaust (laughs) when they catch up with the director was the rupert the bear video on the band list it could have been because i think that wasn't the pre-cert era so that give my regards to broad street paul was lucky that he evaded the attention (laughs) of the dpp and while we were joking about the great paul mccartney video nasty crossover Mark mentioned a couple of TV programmes that he remembered only of seeing when he was on holiday with his family, and which he'd never really heard anything about since. We ended up having quite a long chat about that, which turned into a mini-episode that you can find at timworthington.org. But here's a short extract from it, looking at the adverts in Germany, or rather, what was on between them. We didn't tend to watch much TV when we went on holiday. The one thing that really stands out in my mind was in Germany, I don't know how long this went on for as a thing, there was a countdown between each advert for how many adverts were left and it had a sort of animated boy with a mop of curly hair in different comic situations involving a number. Fascinated by it in a way, kind of, why would anyone bother doing that? Well, in like the position where like the channel logo, the dog would be, they had like an animation counting down how many adverts were left. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then in a toy shop, we saw a toy of him and we thought, well, who would want that? (laughs) It was quite a big thing. And then we forgot about it for a couple of years until there was a band in the early 90s called Electribe 101. One of the members was Billy Ray Martin, who was later a reasonably successful solo artist. She was from Germany and in an interview in Smash Hits, 
she said something about the little boy that comes on between the adverts and, you know, Smash It's made some sarcastic comment involving lots of exclamation marks and she seemed absolutely bewildered that nobody would know what it was over here. But we were thinking, that's that thing, that's a stupid thing. <laughs> Whoever, whatever and whyever that animated inter-advert boy actually was, I'm sure he'll be of great interest to Stephen Brotherston and Dave Lawrence, the authors of Scarred for Life, an excellent book about terrifying children's television, children's books, and everything else aimed at children and some things that weren't that they saw anyway in the 70s. But when they came on Looks Unfamiliar, they wanted to talk about much lighter things, including a very strange pop single. Quantum Jump were a band who had a hit with a song called Lone Ranger in 1978 off the back of the Kenny Everett video show having a quite a racist cartoon at the start. It's a pair of lips singing this one particular word. Am I right in thinking there was a bone through the nose? There was a bone through the nose as well, yeah. I, I, I watched that on YouTube today just to check there was a bone in the nose, and there is actually a bone through the nose of this large-lipped person as they sing this one word. They originally released it as a, as a single, and I think it was 1975 where it got nowhere, and it only came, I say, became famous because of Kenny Everett co-opted the word, the longest place name in the world. So did they re-release it off the back of it? Yes, they did, and they had a hit with it at that point. Wow. We're all waiting. Come on, what was the word? Okay, the word... Word was Tarmata Watatanki Angikuyu Wu Tomataya Tu Pakaka Bikimunga Honoka Poka Wana Wakatanatahu Matakua Tango no Kamikitora. Wow And I spent a lot of <laughs> I thank you. I, I spent a lot of time with that single with the needle hovering over the first five seconds <laughs> transcribing it. <laughs> So I could learn this one word. Well, I did some reading up on Quantum Jump, and it sounds like... I mean, there was a lot of examples of this happening at the time, of people from the previous musical movement trying to gatecrash, sort of... I know it wasn't really kind of post-punk electro. It sort of fitted in with that, you know, the whole kind of punk disco crossover thing. But they were all members of bands like Camel, and Quantum Jump was them trying to get with the times after prog rock got out of fashion. You are right, it did come out in 1975, but according to everything you can find. It was Tony Blackburn's record of the week and then they claim it was banned by the BBC. Which sounds like absolute hogwash to me. I think just... It sounds like it was on a small label. I think the label went bust or something. Because... I can't see it being banned for any reason. I think the fact that the song is about a gay relationship between the Lone Ranger and uh, Tonto may have something to do with it. Would Tony Blackburn have noticed that? <laughs> it, you know, I mean, if you do listen to the lyrics, it is about the Lone Ranger finding comfort. With... Is there a line about he, he a puffer or something? Yes. I thought so. Yeah, they use the word puffer. Yes, they do, yes. But I, I only listened to the first five seconds, so I was blissfully unaware of this for quite a while. Well, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, you know, we stumbled across two things that really probably went without comment at the time. I will give Kenny Everett a get-out-of-jail-free card because he did a few ill-advised things at various points yeah. of his career at the same time as being a real campaigner, you know, for liberalism in general, making himself yeah. a very visible gay person in the public eye and even before he came out not really caring who knew it. Quantum Jump, I'm a bit unhappy with the lyrics, I've got to say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm less inclined to fight yeah. their corner really well to be fair he did only use the first five seconds so, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. so you don't really get into the, the Lone Ranger bit yeah, I think at they, that point. they knew what they were doing. But For many years, I just thought it was a nonsense word. And then I only, only found out many years later that it was actually, at the time, the longest place name in the world uh, to, to Hill in New Zealand. Apparently, 
that wasn't on. I don't know if it wasn't on the original release of a bit. It certainly wasn't on the original version. And someone said that needs something silly at the start to make it a hit. And so it's interesting you only listened to the first five seconds. It's like Spaceman by Babylon 2. Yes, the first bit's really good when it's sped up, and then when it slows down, it's terrible. Yeah. You know, when you did that thing with the the needle where you used to balance it out and you tried to get exactly on the right bit and then take it (laughs) off again. You know, I became a master of that. So would you write down? I would I would transcribe it phonetically so I'd tar mat Wata, tangy, <laughs> and so on. And I'd have this huge word, and then I'd, I'd go over it again and again. I don't know why. Has it ever come in useful in any circumstance? Do you know what? If I'm showing off that I can also say that Welsh place, then yes. But, <laughs> but in no other circumstances, I have to kind of edge it into a conversation, which is not about that at all. I also learned that Welsh place from a song. Sorry, I'm enthusiastic. Now. I remember that. That record, they used to play on Radio Merseyside a lot for some reason. That yes. I, go on. I, I, I can't remember the whole word. So come on, sing it, and I'll see if it's the same one. Welsh place. It's the song went. Plan via with Green Geth go get a whim, drop a slam to Celia go go go. It was like Ralph McTell, something like wow. that. It was like this kind of upbeat, perky song. Radio Merseyside always had about two and a half records. Yes. And they would yes. change them completely. And that was one of the ones that I remember them playing a lot. As well as, a little bit later, The Only Way by Lisa Stansfield, which I chose when I was a guest <laughs> on this. But they really, they didn't seem to care about music at all. I mean, I doubt they played The Lone Ranger, let's be honest about it. But yes, Terry Lenane <laughs> might have done on his indie show <laughs> <laughs> no they had a playlist and they stuck to it yeah well you say playlist it was play paragraph <laughs> yeah, yeah. play back of a stamp even radio merseyside probably wouldn't have lowered themselves to play some of the records that appeared in our christmas special when writer stephen o'brien joined us to talk about some of the more ridiculous christmas singles from the 80s even so i wasn't quite prepared for just how ridiculous one of them would actually prove to be Old Fashioned Christmas, performed by Anne Charleston and Ian Smith. Imagine Harold from Neighbours, respectively. It, it just, it's just baffling. This was Christmas 1989. Clearly, you know, the preceding sort of year or two, we'd obviously Callie Minogue and Jason Donovan had sort of achieved their huge success. The singing careers spinning out of Neighbours. Even earlier in 1989, Stephen Dennis. And a lot of people at that time were saying... That's when neighbours act too far. Yes. Well, stick around, <laughs> folks. Because what then what happened Christmas nineteen eighty nine is that somebody I mean in fact it was Jive Records actually. Hang on, so Jive Records who at that point were just about to release Fool's Gold by the Stone Roses. Yeah. <laughs> Jive Records somehow got into the, the head to say, Well actually, Neighbours is really popular. Why didn't we do a record with Imagine Harold? And that's their big mistake. You could argue if they'd done a record of Imagine Harold, mm. if they'd done something along those way in character, that might have had a more realistic chance of catching on because it ties into the whole Neighbours thing more closely. Because let's not, let's not forget, you know, Anne Charles and Ian Smith were probably in the, at least in the 40s. Mm. At that, that I think that might be being generous, <laughs> actually. <laughs> so, 40s, 50s, for example. <laughs> And given that most of the viewership, the large amount of mm. viewership, although the most the teenage young people, so you can sort of see why mm. Jason and Kylie and whatever, you know, would have that success. But what 14-year-old is going to go on by record by the two actors who play Imagine Harold? Yeah. And we haven't even got to the, the record itself <laughs> yet. So this, this record, supposedly seasonal, called Old Fashioned Christmas, 
This was written by a musician called Phil Hampson, and he produced it with Brendan Leon. Sorry, guys, you probably don't want me to mention your <laughs> name, but I've mentioned it. What's really bizarre about this one, Tim, is that aside from the odd little sleigh bell is percussion at the start of the record, and sometimes at the end, it's not, it doesn't sound very Christmas at all. Does it sound old-fashioned? It does sound very old-fashioned. <laughs> Now, in fairness, you know, I can't even believe we've talked about this rapper. But anyhow, <laughs> somebody's got him. Fair play to Ian Smith. He, you know, gives us some gusto on this record. He has quite a sort of, you know, resonant voice. But Anne Charles and bless her, she just can't sing for toffee. And it's kind of a, a snowman-esque rasp. And <laughs> so, and, and this is the other problem with the record is, aside from the fact the record exists... <laughs> It's this disparity between Ian Smith being quite a good singer and Anne Charleston just kind of phoning it in. And it's just, it's the oddest mishmash in ever. Mm. It's not a particularly strong song. In terms of the arrangements and stuff, not my cup of tea, but it's, it's well mm. done so far. In terms of the arrangements and the production of the record, they've done a, a fair job. But it just brings me back to, you know, the fact that these tapes are delivered to Jive Records and they've still released it. <laughs> and it's just... Oh. And just to run the whole exercise home. So remember, it's called Old Fashioned Christmas. Mm. And you can Google image this if you want, if you're really that bored. But the cover art, it's a sepia photograph of the two actors and they framed this horrible green marble effect <laughs> Aside from possibly being the worst record of the 1980s, it's the worst cover art ever in the whole of Christendom. It's terrible. And then the, the, there was a gatefold version, Tim, of this. Please tell me it didn't have two singles in it. No, it was just gatefold <laughs> with a kind of a Christmas wishes message. And then one of those faux kind of present tags where it says to and from. You know, just in case you wanted to give it to somebody as a mm. present. It's just a total misjudgment of it. It's... Somebody looking at something and thinking that is popular, ergo anything to do with it will be popular, rather than looking at the reasons why. I mean, let's be honest about this. The reason I would say the majority of people watch Neighbours and Home and Away was because they were young and they fancied people on it. I watched Home and Away for Rebecca Ramaloglu. I watched Neighbours for Melissa Bell. I might have pretended otherwise at the time, but that's the absolute truth. Not many of the target audience were watching to see the latest comedy witterings between Madge and Harold and convinced of that. You know, they probably probably thought of, like, you know, Jim Robinson is a bit over the hill. (laughs) It might have been occasionally, you know, there might have been one or two viewers who thought they were quite good. That's what seems to be most people hating Harold at first, because he's quite an authoritarian, patrician figure, wasn't he? That had very firm ideas on how young girls should dress, and you know, which, obviously, (laughs) when I was watching that, wasn't what I wanted at all. You did have have firm ideas about how young girls should dress, but you were full. At the time, well, I'm glad you that. added that bit. Yes, I thought it was important in case yeah. you left it in. I'd mm. advise you to check out the cover art because that's amazing itself. I'd probably say skip the record though. Well, this was—I mean, this was around the time, and you know, obviously, Neighbours was quite a big thing for because uh, you might remember this is when I had that jump at every seven the Erinsborough High jump that a relative of Bournemouth and I got forced to wear. It was the same as the school jumpers in Neighbours. And I kept expecting to be 
collared by old Muir. But it was the headmaster. <laughs> but everyone read people would say, you'll go to school in neighbours. <laughs> Shame <laughs> of it. Stephen actually arrived early to record the Christmas special, and we ended up also recording a commentary on the edition of Top of the Pops that was on BBC4 that night. Again, you can find that at timworthington.org. And here's an extract with us reacting to a Howard Jones single that we probably not thought about since that edition actually originally went out. Wow, right, Jed Hoyle, the mime guy, if he dressed as Mr. Nosybunk. You're absolutely dumbstruck by this. Do you remember it at all? No, I don't. I was listening to Howard Jones before yeah. in the office. Well, I remember him doing this on Wogan. I think it was the world premiere of it. And he performed it with Jed in that mask. And they had a huge photographic blow-up of the mask behind them. And then when Terry interviewed afterwards, he did say, Oh, do you still have the mind fellow with you? And he'd just been on! He'd just been with him! What I was just going to say is that I thought Jed had long gone by this point. But there he is. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's Mr. Nosybunk redrawn by Bob Godfrey in one of his <laughs> soft porn cartoons, I think. Not that there's anything soft porn about it, just that it's got that visual look. But I can see where Stephen Moffat got the idea for the silence from. <laughs> Certainly. Oh, they've got one of those fur lights with the green screen computer yeah. attached. You didn't really need that when you were on top of the pops, Not did really, you? Apart no. from some bands would have. Do you remember you say pet shop boys on theirs? And everyone's like, "Ooh, how clever!" I'm like. Well, it's not Cavalier. Yeah. Like he's, he decided to drag along what was probably a hundred thousand pounds worth of equipment there, yeah. just for it to sit there. Being played by Chesney Hawkes' brother, by the <laughs> look of it, Jody Hawkes. Jody Hawkes. <laughs> there is a weird thing about taking too much equipment for miming. I've never understood that. You know, it's like at the moment I'm reading How Does It Feel by Mark Kermit, where he does talk about that, and he says about how his ambitions with his bands was always, you know, nobody should have any instrument they couldn't carry themselves. And admittedly, you know, he's always been in sort of stripped-back skiffle bands, but, you know, as he points out, that includes a, a guitar, a harmonica, a theremin. And yet, why do you need, if you're going to mime? You know, remember there would sometimes be people in the 80s with two drum kits? On top of the yeah. box with those synth pad drums as well. Oh, look, they're rocking the old synth pads there. Oh, yes, yeah. And then there's a load of unlikely characters, i.e. the audience, <laughs> stood behind holding kind of cheapo replicas of Jed's weird get-up. Oh, no. oh, there are as well. It's like that subplot in that American Torchwood that didn't go anywhere. <laughs> All those people going around with those sort of cyber masks. They're getting quite sort of intimate here. Yeah, I'm not going to win this week's jigsaw competition. I can't work out the clues. <laughs> oh, he's actually playing um, what oh. looks like a Commodore 64 now. Yeah. So he's finally moved over to the fair life for the mm. instrumental break. Mm. So here's the thing. The thing is, Howard Jones was really, really good, and this, this isn't, and it's... It must be awful when you kind of trip up a bit in public like this, because yeah. I'm sure he must must listen to this himself now and think, yeah, the wheels came off a bit with this. Yeah, it's no pearl in the shell or it's what not is love. Or... What is love, anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Jed's getting a bit expressive there, isn't he? 
Yeah, somebody's taking their Jed mask off yeah. in the background. Not surprised me. That was a bad idea. Involving the audience in the performance on top of the box is always a bad idea. I remember being obsessed with earlier in these repeats. I had Lynx doing So This Is Romance. We had a bloke doing a weird hopping from one foot to the other, <laughs> dancing. He looked like a... He looked like an insane Danny John Jewel. Oh my God, they've got a... They've got a Jed mask of Gary Davis. And that wasn't the end of it either. The Christmas special really was the gift that kept on giving because when I mentioned late one night to Gareth F. Hirons that we just recorded it, he mentioned a programme that he remembered watching on Christmas Day in the early 90s and we decided to record a special mini episode about that, which we did about six hours later. And even though I'd already decided to pretty much stop doing Looks Unfamiliar for the Christmas period, I managed to put it out on Christmas Day as a special extra and you can hear a short extract from it now. I remember the hype. Mainly, like it seemed inescapable for mm. up to a month beforehand that there was this big televisual extravaganza coming up, helmed by Malcolm McLaren, and there was going to be some singing, and that was about all I really got from it. And the Happy Mondays were going to be on it, and I did watch it. I watched it, and that was a particularly happy Christmas for me because that was a new console Christmas. I got got a Nintendo Entertainment System that year with uh, Super Mario Brothers and Batman, and I actually turned it off probably for the first time that day, to watch this, what turned out to be an immensely confusing, I'm going to say hour of television. I can't actually remember how long it lasted. I think it was an hour, yes. Yeah. Yeah. However, the memories have come flooding back a little bit since we discussed it. And one thing that i completely forgotten is the presence of the fairy tale of New York. And But it's come back to me as clear as, as, clear as day yeah. now that that was in it. And I... Part of me wonders whether that was the start of that being such a big thing at Christmas. But then another part of me goes, well, we're the only two people that seem to remember this programme being on in the first place, so possibly not. But that's an interesting question, because I have always wondered when. Fairytale New York, when it was out, yes, it was a big hit, but it was still quite... It was still an underground record in some ways. It was the record that the weird kids in school liked. Well, I say that being one of the weird kids <laughs> in school. But it was it was something that sort of came and went and wasn't that well received at some point. I remember a big thing on Points of View about the language in it, because they did it on Top of the Pops unedited. People seem most concerned about Merry Christmas, your arse, which... <laughs> yes, that, that's not the one you want to be concerned no, about. No, no, but yeah, I, I'm not sure when the actual resurgence was. It wasn't to do with Kirsty dying, it was a number of years before that. If anyone's got any ideas, please write in. <laughs> but it's a new mind performance of the original track, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, I think the conceit was that pop stars of the day were playing... Well, I say pop stars. Rebel MC was involved. Yeah, he was. And I, I, I know he was street tough and all that, but I, I, I think he was washed up by this stage. Rebel MC with DJ Rom, of course. Oh, <laughs> oh you should have said. Obviously, if DJ Rom was there, it was worth, worth writing home about. There was much more about early 90s late night Channel 4 oddness when game designers Vicky Gregorich and Jeff Lewis appeared on Looks Unfamiliar, as they're both very much fans of a certain secret cabaret. It was this, well it was a cabaret on the television, but it was kind of on the darker side of cabaret. So there was less of that kind of singing and more sort of people lying, uh, like fakirs, putting needles through their skin and stuff. But it was a show primarily, I think his name is Simon Drake. He's a fairly well-respected magician in magician circles. So he's the Daniel Kitson, I guess, of magicians. He ran a show, I think it ran for about two series, but they were very punchy on Channel 4, sort of quite late, sort of Euro-trashed sort of time. And it would be composed of 
very strange circus acts and then little sort of VTs of people talking about strange things and then at the end Simon Drake would do an outrageous magic trick and that was actually the least part of the show for me his big outrageous trick but he'd do things like um, simulate being guillotined and those sort of things so sort of really hardcore magic that was quite sort of well very frightening but I imagine from a magician's point of view fairly straightforward but my favorite things about it were the people who debunked stuff so the man who was in um, Frank Habagnali, who's the man um, to Catch Me If You Can, he's the basis of that film. I was so excited when that film came out because I was like, I know him, I know who he is. Every episode he would talk about one of the sort of little tricks he used to get up to and how easy it was to fool people. And you would go, oh gosh, yes, I would be fooled by that too. And it was brilliant. And there was another guy who knew how carnivals worked and how casinos worked. So he taught me how to deal from the bottom of a deck of cards. And he also showed how they change things in the carnival so that you can never get the ball in the milk bottle or why you can never got the hoop over the nails. And he actually showed you how they work. So it was this brilliant kind of dark way of looking behind the scenes of something that was absolutely amazing. But then there would be genuinely interesting people on there like fakirs who would literally pull a bit of skin out from their neck and put a nail through it and they were actually doing that well i think what's interesting is that you know you fast forward a couple of years later there are a lot of things really like it because it's very much in terms of the the illusions and the whole attitude very much in the style of darren brown dynamo yep. what was i can't remember his name soft lad that stood on the pole oh uh oh yeah why can no one remember his name he used yeah. to be in the headlines every day but... blame David, David Blaine. Blaine. David yes. Blaine. Yeah. Yeah. There, that was his greatest trick. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing was that they've all been, despite presenting haha the illusion and not being, they've been quite mainstream in what they do. Mm. Whereas the secret cabaret was very kind of nine inch nails, industrial goth sort of thing. Completely. I think I remember watching it and thinking, oh no, they're going to cut an emo in half. <laughs> I mean, I think there was a genuine sense of danger in it. And they had a live audience. So you would hear these absolutely gasping reactions to people putting a nail through their arms or having sex with an angle grinder, which isn't quite what they were doing, but <laughs> groin angle grinder mm. stuff. And, you know, it was, they're all people you can see in the circus of horrors now if you get to go and see it. But it was the first place you kind of saw it on the television. Yeah, and because the Jim Rose Circus were quite big at that point, yeah, weren't they? Yeah. Also, I mean, people acted like that was on the back of grunge, but it was more on the back of stuff like this, I think. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I think it was the first time I really realised that an alternate way of life wasn't actually that difficult to get to. You could get there quite easily. You know, if you could see it on Channel 4, you could see it. It was there. And it's the same with Eurotrash. You know, mm. there was this whole world of people living their lives in a really different way that were just there they were there you could go and find them if you wanted yeah but on the other hand also on channel 4 around the same time there was passengers which was the self-made fly on the wall documentary about alternative lifestyles in europe that was the most boring and pretentious <laughs> program that has ever existed <laughs> genuinely whenever there's a poll saying you know what was the best channel 4 moment ever i always reply saying the worst was anything on passengers <laughs> i hated that program i looked up what sort of Simon Drake's up to mm. now, but the interesting thing was that one thing I noticed was the first record he ever bought was Fire by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. That surprises and me in no way. Well, <laughs> yeah, I immediately thought of Arthur Brown on top of the pops with the flame yeah. crown on, but that is the secret cabaret. Yeah. That whole performance must have, like, you must have seen that when he was, like, I don't know, five or something and thought, 
I'm going to base my life on that. Well, even when you see Simon Drake's actual theatrical performances of his tricks, they've got a lot of Arthur Brown in them. There's mm. all of that sort of stuff. And there's that kind of medieval... You see it a lot more now than kind of sort of steampunky ideas and those sort of ideas. You do see a lot of that influence in it now. But at the time, you never saw mm. anything like that. It was, it was really new. Making a much-requested return appearance, journalist Emma Burnell turned out to have plenty to say about the arty side of Channel 4 as well. But while we were setting up, she mentioned something from entirely the other end of the television schedules. An ITV children's show which was advertised but which never actually got transmitted and which it turned out Emma knew something about. I went to a primary school called Gracebrook which was in Hackney and at the time was not particularly middle class, although I believe it's quite different now. But we were asked to record a theme tune to a Big Daddy-based Saturday morning TV show. I seem to remember some of the lyrics were Big Daddy is number one, Big Daddy is super fun, and that's all I remember. So that was what the the words were going to be. And then I think Big Daddy had a heart attack or had a health scare of some kind and so therefore couldn't do the show. So our theme tune was pulled and somebody else re-recorded it. And to make up for it, a boy called Nigel Jackson, who I had such a crush on, got to be on the Saturday show. They did this sort of wish fulfillment thing and he got to be head teacher for the day. And again, you can find the full mini episode featuring all of that chat about Big Daddy not being on television at timworthington.org. Meanwhile, one of the things that Emma had actually turned up to talk about was a radio station that, for many reasons you're about to find out, she probably shouldn't have been listening to. Melody Radio was 24-hour easy listening radio station. And the gimmick was that the presenters on it weren't allowed to talk. They didn't, you know, there was no, all they did was say, this is this record and this is that record, and say, Melody Radio 104.9 FM. And so in order to distinguish themselves from each other, Every presenter said it a different way. It was hilarious. So it was like, Melody Radio, 104.9 FM. Or Melody Radio, 104.9 FM. (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny. They were so obviously trying to distinguish themselves from each other. And it was just just easy listening. And one of the ways my ex-boyfriend, my first serious boyfriend, used to have Melody Radio on on the other side of the room on his clock radio, because it was just so awful in the morning that you just would get out of bed to turn it off. Wake Up Melody was very, very hard to to get through. But sometimes it was absolutely cracking. And we used to just listen to it, me and my weird 17-year-old mates, for hours and hours. And it had quite niche adverts and just a whole bunch of easy listening, sometimes just instrumentals, sometimes, you know, cheesy pop. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. Well, I don't think it was national because I remember reading about it in an interview with Mike Flowers in the NME when Wonderwall was out, where Uh... he was actually saying that he couldn't understand why. Apparently they changed their policy from easy listening to sort of AOR stuff around the time he was in the charts with Wonderwall. And he was saying it used to be great and I used to love it. And now it's just quite kind of, you know, FM oldies rock. But I remember thinking, I've never heard of this station. And it may have, was it London only? I think it was London only. 104.9 is now XFM, I think. It is. And 105.4, which is its other frequency, is now Magic. 
Well, there you go. I mean, it, morphing into magic is more understandable than morphing into XFM. But yeah, I think it was London only, as most radio stations were much more regional in those days. Yeah, they never went national with Melody Radio, which is when you think of how... Well, I was going to say when you think of how big the whole lounge thing was in the early to mid-90s, but it sounds as though it might not, from what you say... It might not be really in line with that. Was it more sort of crooners and... Yeah, it wasn't really... I mean, I don't know whether it was a money thing, but it wasn't like Waterfall Snarch or anything like that. It was stuff you very likely to, uh, never to have heard of, or you might have done, because of you. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was kind of cheesy pop that you've never heard of, or kind of flowery light opera sometimes, or songs from, like really obscure musicals it's very bizarre as i say we did love it we used to listen to it all the time but i do remember there was one night that we changed we we dialed into magic actually this is a bit later this is post-university so melody radio was my pre-university and post-university we listened to magic because they were doing hits of the 80s and we got drunk and we kept ringing them every half an hour to request ghostbusters and they were like they were like answering the phone in the end going we don't have ghostbusters how could they not have ghostbusters that was our point <laughs> what you should have done you should have been really clever and got round it oh hang, hang on it was magic so this won't work so let's say you should have asked for that ridiculous song by the bus boys on the ghostbusters soundtrack which yeah. probably would have fitted quite nicely on melody radio but maybe not on magic maybe not maybe not no in the end they made me request shaka khan and, and rufus and i'm like but i want ghostbusters <laughs> that's a very strict policy they've got there yeah you have to have shaka khan I was like, how, oh, did okay. they, how did they make you request it well they said we haven't got it but we can put you on air but will you request this instead and i'm like oh, all right then <laughs> <laughs> Even then, I was a media whore. <laughs> the advertising also on Melody Radio was was just brilliant in and of itself. I mean, it was usually ads for, I think, that weird CD recorder thing that you talked about with one of your guests was advertised on it. Oh, I the Brennan JB7. Yes. yes. I, I seem to remember something like that. But the absolute best one was this one voiced by Willie Rushton, who was quite clearly taking the piss. And God love him. So it'd be like it was called for a, for a product called the Essential Classics, which presumably was one of those sort of classical collections. And it just, you'd have like a burst of Vivaldi and then just Willie Rushton saying this really clicked voice. Do you have the Essential Classics? And then another burst of like Wagner or something. And then it goes, I do. And then another burst of like Beethoven. It was just so clipped and weird and bizarre <laughs> and just hilarious. And God, God love Willie. I mean, I'm such a big fan of Willie Rushton anyway, because I loved, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. And I just, yeah, it was just lovely. So, yeah, even the adverts were just completely obscure and brilliant. Someone who probably wouldn't have fitted in well at Melody Radio was Terry Wogan, because, as writer Paul Cornell was only too keen to point out, he had the little acknowledged habit of enthusiastically backing records that were never exactly even going to become easy on the air radio standards, let alone hits. Terry Wogan had such an audience for his breakfast show on Radio 2 that he's the big factor on Top of the Pops that isn't Radio 1. So an awful lot of the records he champions are records that will get his audience talking and sending him letters and developing running gags about. So you get some, uh, you know, some pretty weird and wild and actually not very good novelty records. But at the same time, he's got an ear for... Your actually avant-garde, really kind of extreme stuff, 
that also gets his listeners talking. He's responsible for, for Laurie Anderson having a hit in Britain. He's responsible for playing people like Klaus Nomi. Um, lightning striking again, if you recall. And that was not a hit. And, and what I'd like to talk about are the ones that he championed that never quite made it. He also, of course, showed his tasteful side with... He's where I first started my adoration for Carly Simon, who's a deeply serious and interesting artist. Anyway, people like Kate and Anna McGarrigal, the folk duo who yeah. recorded Love Over and Over. These days... Wogan's personal choices of records, apart from the Radio 2 playlist, I think would put him on Radio 6. He's really quite an eclectic and varied DJ. Raiders of the Lost Ark theme, out of nowhere, on a regular basis. <laughs> the fact that he is about getting conversations going, it's a slightly different raison d'etre to every other DJ. Single Bed by Fox. You know, there's an awful lot of kind of vaguely cutting-edge pop in there and uh, you know you wouldn't get laurie anderson on radio one well not not until peel in the evening so yeah i'm i want to um say terry wogan all that stuff we don't remember much about that he nevertheless championed all the obscure corners of the roger whittaker back catalogue jesse ray the scottish oh, uh, jesse ray was that the fella with the over the, the sea metal yeah. helmet thing on yeah he was a, a kilt, scottish yeah. singer who wore full kilt and uh, battle armor and a sword <laughs> See, I didn't realise anyone was actually supporting him on the radio, but clearly Wogan was. So I think that Wogan should be better remembered for that side of him. I don't think he was ever the same after he came back. And indeed, I got fed up with him years before he finally stopped, because his comedy had turned from a, a blissful engagement with a public who were as into it as he was, to a kind of begrudging, old manish, isn't the world awful thing. And it's just not what you want at breakfast time or any time, really. No, well, I mean, famously, the only reason that the BBC persisted with Dallas over here was that people were actually tuning in to hear because, you know, he was honest about it. He loved it because he thought it was terrible. But yeah. he was breathlessly relating it to his listeners and people loved hearing him talk about it. And in turn, they started watching Dallas because of that. And the producers of Dallas appreciated that as well. They used to get him to present you know, actual making of documentaries yeah. in America. And sort Blake of the value Seven. of it, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think he's a major factor in Blake Seven being this huge ratings hit. Apart from those occasions where Doctor Who struck gold, Blake Seven is the only one that runs at quite a high level most of the time. And that's that's thanks to Wogan, I think. Well, I think he... I think Kenny Everett invented the idea of the Beeb. And, you know, it being mm. a sort of entity. But I think Wogan really invented the, you know, the tropes about it being almost like a prison that you were stuck in <laughs> with your terrible tea machine. And, you know, people with unusual job titles lurking behind every corner to, you know, to jump out on you to say, you ought to tone down your shirt, Terry, and that sort of thing. He's every now and then a rebel DJ as well. I recall him having arguments with his producer on air. Uh, things like uh, stopping a Murray Head record halfway through because he said he found it too embarrassing. <laughs> And, um, and then being forced to play it again and telling us that he'd been forced to play it again. This is what you get from a, a really cutting-edge broadcaster. 
and um, I, I think an album of his uh, obscurities would, would be really welcome. He's a much more interesting figure as a DJ than people remember him for. I think getting involved with his own art form, with things like the floral dance, was perhaps a really bad idea, because that's what the, the memory people have now. Well, I do actually have, I'll just see if I can find it, a BBC Records and Tapes album from, I think it's 1978, called Wogan's Winners, which has some of the records he supported on, and I'm just wondering if any of them were flops or if they were all hits. Let's have a look. It's got him at Ascot on the front in the top hat. What's it got on it? It's got Elton John, your song, Petula Clark's Sailor, oh. Andy Williams, Almost There. They, these, actually, these are no, very these September are... in the Rain by Dinah Washington. <sighs> these, okay. aren't, these, aren't, these are very mainstream choices. Yeah. I'm just seeing if I can find any typically Wogan thing on there. It's got the instrumental version of the floral dance. Oh, After the Gold Rush by Prelude. Okay. Oh, yeah. Some of the first time by Bobby Goldsborough. Okay, it appears to be side one is actual hits and side two. It's, not, it's got theme from the BBC radio series The Terry Wogan Show is oh. the last track on side two. And, of course, he played the theme from the lives and times of De- life and times of david lloyd george well he actually played that on the radio yeah yeah actually the original instrumental version of the floral dance is a damn strange thing to play in the breakfast show yes. <laughs> especially because it really only has one note in it and then he somehow managed to make it sound like it had less than one note when he sang <laughs> over the top of it but became record companies i think we need a, an album of his obscurities and now here's something you might not have heard me on the Perfect Night In podcast talking to Neil Perryman about the monkeys and why it's possibly not quite the programme that we all used to watch way back when. Here we come, walking down the street. We get funniest looks from everyone we meet. Yeah, my choice is The Monkeys, which is a series that really means a great deal to me. So many levels. I can still remember the first time that I was really aware of it was there were BBC repeats in I think maybe 1979, 1980 when I was still extremely young. But I remember seeing this programme and not being able to work out whether it was new, whether it was old, or why I hadn't why hadn't I heard of these people before? I'm finding it hilariously funny. I think the first one I saw, I did work out well about was Monkeys a la Mode, the fashion magazine spoof one but the one that really stayed with me was the chaperone where davy who was always my favorite of the monkeys wants to date a girl whose father's very protective and says she can only come to their party if it's a chaperone prompting mickey to dress up in drag and uh, he, he, he inhabits the part a little too convincingly and starts to believe it himself and there's a sequence in it that myself and my sisters used to reenact for years afterwards where he imagines being on a gondola, being serenaded, you know, going, Mickey, Mickey, and then it cuts to the other monkeys going, Mickey, Mickey, which, you know, it doesn't sound as funny when I describe it, but that sort of thing, when you're that age, but it wasn't just the, the comedy, it was the songs as well. Though you've played at love and lost, and sorrows turned your heart to frost, I will melt your heart again. Remember the feeling as a child when you woke up and morning smiled. This time you felt like you did. Every single song in the monkeys seemed to be absolutely fantastic. I mean, in this episode, you've got there's this just doesn't seem to be my day, and you just may be the one, which are both great songs, but it's also got Take a Giant Step, which is the the B-side to the Last Train to Clarksville. I mean, I had no idea about that at the time, but 
It's this weird kind of almost psychedelic country and western monkey song with a lot of jangling in it, a lot of echo, sort of thudding drums and so on. I remember being absolutely gobsmacked by that as a very young child because yeah, this, this was in the days when you didn't hear, you still didn't hear 60s music everywhere. You know, it was less than 20 years old. They felt like they're from another age. It felt like they had no connection to the here and now. That still seemed like really remote, you know, like absolutely. And the monkeys being American were even more kind of at a remove. And I was fascinated by them for a very long time. I remember pestering for a Christmas present. There was a Reader's Digest compilation called Here Come the Monkeys, which had a really small photo of them in the front and like the monkeys logo again and again and again in the background. That was the first time I really heard a lot of their music. I bought Head when it came out on VHS, having which is their feature film, having read about it for a long time before that. I was just really obsessed with the monkeys, an obsession that's never quite faded, really. Oh, I don't understand any of this. It's just that I wanted to see your daughter. Well, why didn't you say so? I'm not an unreasonable man. Well, I guess all's well that ends well. There's only one thing that bothers me, though. What? Do I gotta give back the ring? <laughs> I love the Monkeys TV series, but there were a lot of episodes where they're testing a new invention. <laughs> like, a, like a psychedelic last of the summer wine, really, in the Seymour era. But, but the other interesting thing is that, as with another of my later choices, we mainly know the Monkeys from a very different form. Like the way, to me, Top Cat will always be Boss Cat. The BBC prints of the Monkeys, which really battered by the time kind of we would have seen them no they all even series one had the series two opening titles on there were all kinds of countercultural gags and cutaways and so on were removed sometimes entire songs were removed and i'm still not sure why and i do wonder what those edits were actually like you know if you saw them again now how different would they be well i hope you enjoyed that collection of highlights from looks unfamiliar and if you did don't forget you can hear the full shows and many more besides at timworthington.org and if you're feeling generous, why not help support Looks Unfamiliar by buying one of my books? Again, more details, timworthington.org. See you soon. You get these little bits on it, like the French horns playing ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball, you know, from the first line. But they play it in such a way that it sounds a bit like sitcoms, where they get to the end the end of the end titles, like Fresh Fields would go, and then it would go, da like that. As if to say, funny things are about to happen. So maybe this was a bit like Tommy the sitcom, I don't know. Can't Help Thinking About Me by Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org. I mean, I've seen photos of Chernenko from that time, and it's almost as if they've had to put a broom handle down his back just to get him to sit upright. Yes, a friend of the podcast, Tim Worthington, often uh, tells of watching the news around that time, and kind of, I believe there was a, a while where the Soviet Union were claiming he wasn't dead. That that would make sense. Yes, and sort of using using footage of him looking very, very ill indeed as yeah. proof that he was actually fine.